that's all we have for announcements. Um, we're looking at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 11. We're going to be taking a, a pretty big chunk here, uh, looking from uh, Matthew 11, 1 to, to uh, verse 24. And let's uh, look at God's word together. Matthew 11, verse 1. And these are God, this is God's word to you because uh, you are his children. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, uh, and said, uh, said to him, "Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?" And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed uh, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Uh, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's uh, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will, be ex- uh, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades for the mighty works done in you uh, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, how continually uh, we need your word to speak to us, to address us, to reveal to us what's in our hearts, to show us who you are, to surprise us with your goodness and your wisdom and your great deeds. We pray that as we study your word, um, that you would lead us by your spirit into all truth. And I pray for those uh, who are here listening that you would uh, take my words, my uh, 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 fallible words, 
and that you would uh, speak your infallible word to them and to their lives and to their hearts by your spirit. And so we ask for you to be our teacher now. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're looking at a uh, really interesting story about John the Baptist, who, uh, if you don't know uh, the Gospels very well, uh, John the Baptist was uh, a prophet who was a forerunner to Jesus' ministry. And he had a, a ministry where uh, he was going around baptizing, calling people to repentance. And he was uh, this great man, and uh, he's one about, in this passage, Jesus says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there was, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this, this great man, a powerful message. He was a leader. Many people came out to him, and he was uh, someone who, before Jesus really began his ministry, announced to people, this man, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world. He announced, prepared people for Jesus' coming. And yet, here we are in this passage, and uh, here's this great man of faith, this great pro- prophet of God. He's basically, he's kind of like the last prophet of the Old Testament, who's kind of tagged onto the beginning of the New Testament. And he is facing serious doubts about whether Jesus was who he said he was. He is wrestling with doubts. And, uh, of course, you know, you look in this passage, when do his doubts come? They come when he is thrown into prison. And uh, John's been put in prison. Um, He has acknowledged his loyalty to Jesus. And now things are going in his life not the way that he anticipated. He thought Jesus is coming. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's coming. And yet he says now in verse 3 as he's sitting in prison, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Is Jesus really the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah? Is he who he says he was? This is, John is uh, vocalizing for us, saying for us, what many of us wrestle with, what many, many people in a place like Bellingham ask, is Jesus really the way? Is he really, can he really be who he said he was? What this passage teaches us is that the Bible acknowledges that even the most faithful people in the world will struggle with doubt, will face doubts, and will have to work through them. And especially, though, you will find that doubts will come into your life when your Christian life is not going the way that you anticipated that it was going to go. Because for most of us, whether we grew up in the church or we became a Christian in adulthood, we, have an anticipa- we, we expect that being a Christian is going to bring a certain sense of happiness and success and goodness into our life. And oftentimes it does. It you know, radically changes our lives, bring, brings blessings into our lives. But Jesus also says that the Christian life is dis- defined by dying to ourselves. And when we enter into that process of dying to ourselves, it's in that context. Here's John. He's taking up his cross and dying to himself, and this is when the doubts arise. And what happens when doubts come into our lives is that they never leave us the same. They will either drive us away from God, or we will work through them and process them, and we will be much closer to God. And our, our faith will be much deeper, far more profound, and we'll understand things on a deeper level. So doubt plays an important part in, the, in our Christian life, and yet doubt never leaves us the same. And uh, so this morning, I want to uh, think about Jesus' response to John, John's question, are you the one, or should we look for another? 
How does Jesus say that we should deal with our doubts in a way that is healthy? And in particular, I think we see three things in this passage, three things that we're supposed to look at in in order to deal with our doubts. We're supposed to look at the scriptures, we're supposed to look at our own hearts, and we're supposed to look at Jesus himself, the person of Jesus. And when we do that, when we do these three things, uh, look at the scriptures, look at our own hearts, and look at Jesus, we find that doubt um, actually becomes an integral part of our growth as Christians and uh, coming to know God and to know him on a, on a deeper level. So three things. How do we deal with doubt? Um, what do we look at? The first thing is we look at the scriptures. We look at the Bible. We look at God's word is God's word is God's means of grace, his resource he's given to us to address our doubts, to speak to our doubts. And we see uh, that Jesus addresses John's doubts by pointing to the scriptures. Now, before I just explain this passage, I need to give a little bit of background. Um, If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, one of the main events of uh, the Old Testament happened in 586 B.C., where after centuries of unfaithfulness to God, God sent his people Israel into exile under the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in 586 and uh, uh, invaded Jerusalem, destroyed uh, the temple, and took the Israelites into Babylon, and they were going to live under these foreign pagan oppressors. And the prophet Jeremiah said, you're going to go into exile for 70 years. And so they went into exile for 70 years, and near the end of that time, uh, at the end of that time, some people came back and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. But near the end of those 70 years, uh, Daniel came along and he gave another prophecy. He said, okay, there's going to be a partial coming back after 70 years. I know that Jeremiah said that, but actually your exile isn't just going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 times 7 years there is going to be an extended and continued exile that you are going to live under foreign oppressors for the next 490 years. And actually that played out. Israel, for uh, the time leading up to Christ, for those 500 years, they lived under the Babylonians, then they lived under the Persians and the Medes, they lived under the Greeks, and then finally the Romans came and they lived under these oppressive foreign powers. And what Daniel said is at the end of this time, there's going to come one who's going to start a new kingdom that is going to overrule all these other kingdoms and the Messiah is going to come, the Christ, and he's going to liberate you from these foreign oppressors. And so when we come to this passage, it's around the end of the 490 years, and many Jews during this time were saying, the time is coming. Who's going to be the Messiah? Where is he going to show up? And actually, besides Jesus, we know about a number of other kind of would-be Messiahs that showed up in the first, first and second century around the time of Jesus. And John came as a prophet, and he says, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who's going to liberate us. And um, now the reason this is important is because now John has been imprisoned um, by Herod, who's the son of Herod the Great, and uh, who was a king who was appointed by the Romans. Now John is living under the foreign oppression of the Romans, and he's sitting in prison, and he's saying, I thought you were going to come and liberate us from the Romans, and now I'm sitting here in prison, and eventually he's going to be beheaded. He's going to be killed. And so this is why this message makes sense, that he sends the messengers to Jesus, and he says in verse 3, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Christ? Are you this Messiah we're waiting for, who's supposed to be coming right now, or should we look 
for another? And Jesus answers this question. How does Jesus, so he's filled with doubts. This is not going how I anticipated things were going to go. How does Jesus answer him? He basically answers him by quoting Isaiah 35. Look at, look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. Now this little expression, even though Jesus is talking about, look at all the things I've been doing. Tell him that I've been doing these miracles, I've been caring for people. But this little expression in John's mind would have triggered a number of passages from the Old Testament that were signs that the end of the exile was coming. And uh, let me give you, just from Isaiah 35, one of those passages. Behold, this describes the end of this exile, the end of their foreign oppression. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the uh, recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And what Jesus is saying is remember Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 described to you what it's going to be like at the end of the exile. It's happening. The exile is ending, but it's not ending the way you thought, John. You thought I was going to come and gather an army and I was going to take down the Romans. And yet the coming of my kingdom is coming in a way that you weren't expecting. And um, when the Christian life, when following Christ goes in a direction that we are not expecting, the only thing that can reassure us, the only thing that can reorient us through doubts is the word of God itself. It is the word of God that reminds us, that clarifies for us, oh yeah, this is how God is. When I'm suffering, oh yeah, the Bible said that was going to happen. I thought I was just going to have a happy life and I was going to have no problems anymore when I become a Christian. The Bible said I'm going to have to take up a cross and I'm going to die to myself and in that I'm going to find new life and Christ is going to be formed in me. All these things are going to happen. The Bible is the thing that reorients us and reminds us of these things. And the thing that's important to remember is you think of John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist know the scriptures? Yes. <laughs> he grew up, you know, of anyone, he knew them extremely well. And yet Jesus needed, he needed the, the scriptures quoted to him again. I think one of the things that happens, you know, especially if you grew up in the church, you know, you grew up sitting here listening to sermons week in and week out. You've heard all these passages. And you begin to look at that book. And when you're suffering, su- you know, struggling with doubts, you look at the book and you say, you know, I basically know what's in there. I've heard it all. It's not going to say anything new or fresh. And let me, I'll, I'll just tell you as someone who... Now I've spent, you know, I went to school to study this book, and now I study this book every day of the week, uh, preparing for sermons. This is a book I, I still hardly know what's in there. There is, there is newness and freshness all the time. And if we think that we already know it's going to say nothing new, it's going to say nothing fresh to me, we're kidding ourselves. We need the Word of God to speak to us and to address our doubts and to clarify for us, oh yeah, this is who God is. I've forgotten. And even John the Baptist needed that. And the reason for this is because one of the ways that doubts are always relieved in any relationship is by hearing the voice of the person you're having doubts about. By hearing their voice. Actually, uh, just the last couple weeks, if you were here, you know, a couple of our elders 
gave uh, announcements. Well, one was about Monflesh, one was about school of theology. And um, we had been preparing for a number of weeks that they were going to come up and, and give an announcement. And, and two weeks ago, it was Saturday night, late at night, and I realized, oh, I haven't told either of them who's giving the announcement. And they're probably so frustrated with me that I'm, you know, I didn't give them a heads up of what's happening. I'm like, and, and so it's just swimming in my head. And then all of a sudden, this is just growing in my mind of how angry and worked up they are about that I didn't call them about this announcement. What do you think is the best thing to relieve those doubts? Call them. <laughs> talk to them. And the first thing that happens when they, they're like, oh, don't worry about it. I wasn't even thinking about it. Uh, you, know, if it you know, I'm exaggerating in my head that this is way worse than I thought it was. And it's when we hear the voice of the other person, we find out what I thought was happening is not happening. We need to be reminded, and this is what the Word of God does. When we read the Scriptures, when we read the Bible, it's, it, it, it relieves us of that anxiety and that tension, that doubt. It's just like in any personal relationship. These are the very words of God addressed to us. And we don't have the words of God anywhere else except in the Scriptures. And so, you know, let me just say a couple of things of, of, of application. That is one reason why being at church every Sunday, <laughs> why we need that. We need to have God speak to us in any relationship. If you haven't heard the other person's voice, they're going to become distant and you're going to create all kinds of ideas about what they're thinking, about how they feel about you. You're not going to remember who God is unless you hear it every week and hear his voice. And that's why we just go right through books of the Bible. We teach the Bible. It's because it's the words of God that are the things that relieve our doubts. But also... Consider, I, I don't know how many of you have Bible reading as a, just a regular part of the spiritual diet of your life. But picking up God's word and reading a little bit every day, letting it address your heart, is one of the primary things that we need in our life to address our doubts. Okay? So the first thing, how do we, uh, how do we deal, with, deal with doubt? We must look at the scriptures. We must let the scriptures address us. But one of the things that will happen when you read the scriptures is that as you begin to study them, uh, as you begin to study these words, this book begins to study you. You think you're searching it out. It begins to search you out. It begins to search out your heart. And uh, they don't just explain God to help your doubt. The scriptures explain to you your own heart, what is happening in your heart that is causing you to doubt, and uh, which is a crucial part to the process of doubt, is not only that we look at the scriptures, but also that we look at our own hearts. And uh, I've been reading a, a collection of essays by C.S. Lewis, um, which are, they're kind of essays on philosophy and culture from a Christian perspective. It's called Christian Reflections, is what this collection is called. And in one of them, he talks about the, uh, the experience of doubt and how many people, they believe that the reason they're having doubts is because they are, they are intellectual people and they can't believe in God unless it is reasonable and it lines up with their intellect. And, you know, we're modern people, we're scientific kind of people, and if it can't speak to my intellect, I can't believe it. And what C.S. Lewis says, he says, okay, you know, that's true. There are questions, there are intellectual questions that go with, with the Bible and, and believing in God. But if we believe that our doubts come from a purely intellectual pursuit, a purely intellectual exploration, we are naive. 
because our beliefs and our doubts so much more than our intellect, uh, intellectual pursuits come from simply our mood. What mood are you in? What mood are, you know, and this, let me give you one quote. This is what he says. But everyone must have experienced days in which we are caught up in a great wave of confidence or down in a trough of anxiety, though there are no good grounds for either the one or the other. Our moods about God are not shaped by our intellect. They just come up and down, and we don't even know where they're coming from. Why am I up one day and totally confident that God's alive and he loves me, and other days he seems distant and void? It's not from our intellect. It's simply from our mood. And this is what he says. Of course, once the mood is on us, we find reasons soon enough. We begin to find reasons for our doubts. And we convince ourselves that, and he says, and we say that we've been thinking it over, but it is pretty plain that the mood has created the reasons, not vice versa. It is not that our intellectual pursuit has created this mood of doubt. It is we have a mood of doubt. We are skeptical about God. We have a skeptical mood that finds and searches out reasons to doubt. And let me just say, you know, one thing that in any personal relationship, if you are skeptical of a person, if that is your mood, your spirit towards them, you are always going to keep them at a distance. You are always going to be overly critical of them, right? If you have that in any relationship. But what does the Bible say that, that a healthy relationship looks like? Love trusts all things. And if we are constantly suspicious, this is not a heart of health. This suspicion this skeptical mood is um, characteristic of our culture. We are, live in a culture that has a, a whole lifestyle of suspicion and being skeptical of churches, of beliefs, of people, and we keep people at a distance. And it turns out that this mood was characteristic of Jesus', Jesus culture as well. Look at verse 16, what, what Jesus says here. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that his culture, his generation, the people around him, were like a bunch of kids that were getting ready to play. And two of the kids came up, and one of them says, hey, let's have a wedding party. And he starts playing a flute, and no one's like, not interested. They're like, okay, not into the wedding party game. Why don't we play the, uh, why don't we play the funeral dirge game, and we'll pretend to be all sad. And they say, unmoved, I'm not interested. And what they're saying is basically that, that, that uh, John the Baptist, he was the child playing the dirge, and he came preaching uh, you know, judgment and hellfire, and he's saying you need to repent, and all his disciples were fasting and living this ascetic kind of life. And, and that whole generation says we're not interested in John the Baptist. They say, okay, well then Jesus came. Jesus came feasting, and inviting tax collectors and sinners, everyone to come and sit with him. The kingdom of God is open. All are welcome. The forgiveness of sins, it's joyful. It's like a wedding party. And they say, we're unmoved by you too. There is an overly critical spirit of both of them that no matter what they hear, they are going to find a flaw in uh, what either of them are saying. And what that tells us is that 
doubts do not just come from an intellectual reasoning. It comes from issues of the heart. It comes from our mood towards God. And um, there is something in us that wants to be skeptical of God. And one of the reasons that we are constantly saying to God, you better prove yourself to me, you better show me that you're true, is because when we are skeptical, when we're analyzing, when we're critical, it keeps us in control. It keeps us in control of God, that he needs to prove himself to me. He needs to meet my standard. There is something in us that doesn't want to believe. There's something in us that wants to doubt. Now, why is that? Why would we want to doubt God? Jesus gives us the answer. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty deeds done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What, what Jesus is saying here is there were all these towns where he was going around doing these miracles, healing people. There was an overwhelming abundance of evidence that he was God, that he was powerful, that he was the Christ, he was the Messiah. And yet all these people, they saw miracles. They saw tons of miracles and they didn't believe. Why? Jesus says they didn't want to repent. They knew that following Jesus is gonna, was going to change their life. It was going to affect their life. It made a demand on our life. And the reason we, you know, we have skin in this game, if, if, if there's a God out there who's watching us, who makes demands on our lives. So we have reasons not to believe in him. And, um, you know, you just imagine a young college student goes off to college, grew up in the church, sleeping with his girlfriend, he goes into philosophy class, starting to hear some reasons that maybe God doesn't exist. He knows that the Bible forbids sleeping with your girlfriend, that sex only happens in the covenant of, should only happen in the covenant of marriage. The Bible forbids that. All of a sudden, those, it's becoming very convenient to believe in those doubts about God. They are becoming attractive. If there's not a God, I just get freedom. But if there's a God, it, it impinges on how I want to live my life. And so one of the things that we have to be aware of is that we are bringing something into these doubts. There is a reason why we want to doubt, because if we doubt, we, we think that we get freedom. And uh, we should be aware of our own hearts. And what Romans 1 tells us is that you look at the world, you look at the stars, you look at the moon and the sun, you look at the animals and the mountains and the trees and the beauty of everything, you look at uh, humans and eyeballs and how they're made, it is de God says it is obvious that there is a God who is powerful and wise. It is obvious to everyone. And yet we suppress the truth because we don't want to be accountable to God. So unbelief, doubt, is a willfulness. There is something in us that doesn't want to believe. Um... If we are struggling with doubt, we must not think that it is simply God who needs to be examined, but our own hearts need to be examined as well. Okay? Now, some of you might say, you know, that's kind of harsh. Because, uh, you know, it's true. Uh, you, we have to be careful that, you know, if we say to anyone who's in this church who's having doubts, you're probably sleeping with your girlfriend. That's why you're having these doubts. Uh, <laughs> 
that's kind of cold, right? And actually, you know, it's, uh, it's a, a part of the vision of this church that this is a place that you can express your doubts. If you, there are such things as honest questions. I just don't get this. It's not that I'm having doubts, I'm suppressing God. I just want to understand. And there's all kinds of people that say, that say this, this doesn't make sense. Can you explain it to me? And when you explain it to them, you say, wow, praise the Lord. I'm excited. I want to learn. And that's why, actually, in Jude 22, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And um, honest questions can find answers. And so when we're struggling with doubt, first, we look to the scriptures. We look at the scriptures. Second, we look at our own hearts. What am I bringing to this? Do I want to find reasons that God doesn't exist? But the third thing, as we deal with doubt, is we must look at Jesus himself, the person of Jesus that is the place we look when we are struggling with doubts. And um, one, now, you know, one of the reasons that I think that uh, doubt is such a big issue in our culture, you know, we live in a modern era, in the, you know, after the scientific age. And for many people, they think of there's two different kinds of beliefs in the world. There are the beliefs that are scientific, that are verified facts, that have been scientifically proven, that you can feel a, a lot of certainty about. And then there's other kinds of beliefs that you take on faith. You know, that, you know, you can't prove that there's a God, and so you just take it on faith, and you just take a leap of faith. And, it's, and they often refer to it as blind faith. And, um, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about my own process in, in working through doubts. Uh, before I was a, a pa- decided to become a pastor, I was, wanted to be a mathematician, and uh, I studied math for a number of years in undergraduate and graduate school, and I wanted to be a math professor. And um, one of the things about math, one of the things that was attractive to me about math was the intellectual rigor that went into mathematics. Like, unlike any other subject, not even philosophy, not even the hard sciences, math was about proving things. And the things that you proved in math, you knew there were no flaws because it was pure logic. There was no, you know, experiments going on. It was pure logic and reason, and so you felt this sense of certainty about the things that you were proving. And uh, actually, there was a, a, a class that, uh, that, this was the class that I took that when I really fell in love with mathematics in my junior year up at Western, and I loved this professor, and it was called the Introduction to Proofs. And introduction proofs, what you did is you started at the beginning of math, the very foundation, and we built the whole construct, the whole system of math from the ground up. We proved every statement, every belief, every theorem, every proposition, every lemma, whatever was proven, defined everything crystal clear. And there was this sense of certainty. Everything that we know about math has been verified by proven fact. And what that gives you is a sense of confidence, right? I feel confident. I know these things. And for me, I wanted that same kind of certainty in my faith. That same kind of, this is a proven, verified fact that I felt in, the, in my math classes. I wanted to feel that in my faith. But there's a problem. You can't prove there's a God. You can't prove God. God doesn't live under our logic. You can't prove God. You have to take that on faith. And... Um, and so many people, for many people, this is a problem for their faith because they say our faith is kind of second-class knowledge. We, you know, there's proven facts, but we're kind of second-class because we had to take it on faith. We couldn't prove it. But I'll tell you a turning point in my life 
was I realized way later in this, uh, this process of math, I remembered that in that class, Introduction to Proofs, when we were beginning to build the whole mathematical system the first day of class, the professor came and he handed us all a sheet of paper and he said, okay, we're going to build all of mathematics, but I, we're going to start with this. And written on that piece of paper were eight axioms. These are eight mathematical beliefs that we cannot prove. There's no way you can prove them. They seem to be true. Most people think they're true, but you're just going to have to take them on faith. And we can't even start to do math until you believe these things. And all of a sudden, it realized faith and reason are not at odds with each other. What did this math professor say? All of the purest, this, this purest logical discipline of mathematics is built on faith. On faith. There are certain axioms that we just have to take by faith before we can even start thinking. And for us as Christians, our axiom, the, our starting point is the person of Jesus Christ. That he has bid us to follow him and to have everything about our lives be defined by who he is and, uh, and what he has done for us. And so, um, uh, this is what Jesus says. Look at verse 19, the end there. He has that, that famous little line where he says, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. We have looked at Jesus Christ. We've looked at his words. We've looked at his actions, what he has done, and he, we have found him to be someone who's trustworthy. And so as Tim Keller puts it, we don't believe in an airtight argument. We believe in an airtight person a person like no one else that we're willing to give our lives to and follow. And so what that says is a couple things, is just as I, as I close here, is that first of all, if you're not a Christian, and you're asking this question, you say, you know, I'm, I still have doubts, and I, not, not everything hasn't been verified for me yet about Christianity, then the answer is the question you should be asking is not can God be proven to you, but you should be looking at the person of Jesus Christ, read the Gospels, and say, is this someone that I find trustworthy? Do I trust his words? He says that he is the God who made this world come to visit us. Do you trust him? But also, if, you're not a, if you are a Christian and you're struggling with doubts, and you feel like maybe there's all kinds of evidence from the world, from you know, the universities, from books, that's saying you shouldn't believe in Jesus, you shouldn't believe in the Bible... Remember that our faith is in a person. It is not in an argument. And it's kind of like this. One author puts it this way. You know, let's say a uh, police officer came to the door of my house and arrested my wife and said, your wife's been arrested uh, for murder. There's insurmountable evidence against her. And we go to court, and there's just evidence after evidence against her um, that she's guilty. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> I had better stand right next to her and say, I don't care about all that evidence. I know her. I've heard her words. I've seen her deeds. I've lived with her. I've trusted in her. She has proven herself to be trustworthy. And I, in the face of all that evidence, I'm going to stand by her because my trust is not an argument. My trust is in a person. A person that I found trustworthy. And that is, that's, a, that's not only the right thing to do, that is the reasonable thing to do. And that's what we do as Christians, is we look at the scriptures, we analyze our own hearts, but ultimately, we look at the person of Jesus and find that he is trustworthy, he is worthy of our faith, and we rest in him. Let's pray together. Our Lord.
We thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you that you acknowledge that uh, we all have doubts. And I pray for those who are here who are doubting even this morning. I pray that your word would speak to them, would reassure them of who you are. I pray that you would give them insight into their own hearts, that your spirit would guide them to understand what is happening in their own hearts that is creating a sense of, of a suspicion, uh, um, of a questioning of you. But ultimately, I pray that you would lead all of us to our Lord Jesus, to his deeds, to his love on the cross, that we would find it trustworthy and worthy of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.